Appendix N Podcast, Episode 25, The Stories of Conan by Robert E. Howard, Part 5. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. Once, long ago, in an age undreamed of, there was a man named Gary Gygax, and he did recommend many books and stories to be inspirational reading to those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. This, dear listeners, is the show where we read those books, and verily do we talk about them, so that you do not have to. Every episode of Appendix N features a different story or collection of stories. Together with my co-host Jeff Wickstrom and my guests, we lay bare the dusty secrets of these forgotten tomes and speculate how they may have influenced the first edition of the world's most popular role-playing game. If you would like to be part of the show, you can email the host of The Tome Show, Jeff Greiner, at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Listen to the end of the episode for a list of some upcoming stories. Before we get to the program, let us take a moment to mention our sponsor, Noble Knight, online retailer of new and out-of-print role-playing games, war games, board games, and miniatures. Since 1997, they have helped thousands of gamers from around the world save money and find exactly what they need. You can find them on the web at www.noblenight.com. And with me tonight is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Hiya! And welcome back to the show, Peter Foxhoven. Hey, thanks for having me again, guys. Hey, you're with us every time we do Conan stories because you are a Conan expert. Uh, feels good to hear that. I'm not sure if I am, but feels good. Well, compared, compared to Jeff and I, uh, you are. I, I want to start off the show uh, by reading our, our first fan comment. Uh, a a listener named named uh, Ripa, or perhaps Ripa. I hope hope I'm pronouncing that at least somewhat correct. Uh, wrote a a very nice uh, lengthy comment. It's it's the first substantive comment that I've really gotten from a listener on on this show. So I'm I'm very happy. This is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he or she had uh, a a lot of good things to say, but um, he suggested that uh, Robert E. Howard's unimaginative monster names like Thog and Thag uh, are, are likely both homages to the monster Sathaga and its demonic spawn created by Clark Ashton Smith, but used many times by both H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard in their stories. Now, I, I have yet to encounter Sathaga in a Lovecraft story. I, I know I've seen him in, in the Arkham Horror board game and various other Cthulhu-based games. What do, what do we think of this? Is this is this likely? Well, on the one hand, there's only so many like phonemes that you can combine to um, to make a name, and there certainly are some similarities between Sagwa and Thog uh, or Thaug. That is definitely the case, and I think that that's a uh, an, an intelligent observation. I do think though that it's possible to come up with a name. That's a reference to Sagwa that is not Thog. Yeah, I mean, even even if if it is an homage, Thog is not really scary. No, and isn't Sathagwa more like frog-like? 
Isn't that usually how Sothaqua, like in Lovecraft and the Clark is, or am I off on that one? Frog with bat wings. Uh, there you I go. Think. That's right. I was going to say the, the PCs in my game are going up explicitly against his cult, right? So when the person sent that... Uh, that feedback, you know, and it was like, oh, it might be a reference to Sothagua. I kind of kicked myself. I was like, how, am I, how did I not notice that? I'm even using this great old one on the, at the table yeah, right I, now. I, I know zilch about Sothagua because he's, he's not like one of the big four or, or, or five that, that come up all the time. But I, I think the demon in A Witch Shall Be Born, which is the second story we're talking about tonight, uh, sounds like it, it, it could be what you're describing, Peter. Hmm. Yeah, Thog definitely more than the one from uh, than Thog from uh, mm-hmm. Zuthal the Dusk. That one I didn't see as like a true um, like corollary for it, but it is you know I mean they were part of the same lit circle. So Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard were all these guys. I, I wouldn't say ran together because none of them lived like in the same town or anything, but they all like wrote and conversed with each other. Were publishing in the same sort of pulp. So I mean it's not it's not unthinkable that there'd be some sort of um, sharing between ideas and stuff like that through their well, letters. Absolutely. Um, Clark Ashton Smith actually makes a cameo in, I think, more than one Lovecraft story, a reference to the ancient high priest um, like Clark Ashton, um, which is just, uh, just a little homage. Yeah, and uh, he is he is regrettably not on the appendix end list, so we, we won't be getting him to, as, as part of this show, but maybe maybe if there's a corollary to Appendix N. Maybe maybe we will we will cover some of his writing. So uh, thank you, Ripa or Ripa. Um, perhaps your name is also an an homage to a to a great C- C- Cthulhu deity because I'm I'm having a hard time pronouncing it. But um, me me being a horrible person aside, thank you for writing and and I hope more pe- more people will write uh, insightful comments to us so I can butcher your names also. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we are talking about three more Conan stories tonight, uh, roughly in the order they were published. Uh, the first on the docket is The People of the Black Circle, published in three parts in Weird Tales from September to November 1934. Uh, who wants to give a synopsis of People of the Black Circle? Okay, Jeff, I'll go. Okay. Or Peter. Peter, go. Peter, Peter, you're the subject matter expert. Yes. Go. Okay, so the king of Vendaya, which is ostensibly to steal from Jeff, right, it, not India, right, um, he dies due to some sorceress deviltry. At the same time, these group of, well, they're called Afghulis, so we know who they're talking about here, um, tribal people of, like, what would be the Himalayan mountain region. Um, Conan has become their leader. He is has some of his headmen taken captive so he wants to try and get them back right so he goes and he sneaks in realizes uh this is i guess a little bit later here so this is in this place called Peshkauri. so it starts with uh Bundachan, king of indaya dying and so then mm-hmm. fast forward a little bit his sister the devi goes to this provincial town to go and try to like because <clears throat> she believes that the the seers from um Oh, I'm spacing on the name of the mountain range now, which is killing me. The Himalayas? Um, Yimsha. The seers of Yimsha are the ones that are behind it, right? So he go, she goes, try to get this guy named Chundrashan uh, to help her out and help try to find this. And so then the Conan comes in, steals her away, because originally he wants to try to meet and get his headman. Goes through this long kind of run through the 
through the mountains, runs into various different people, and she decides she's going to try to get him to help her, she being the Devi, um, take on the people of the 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 seers of Yimsha, and eventually through his own means he kind of does. Is that like a fair synopsis? I've never been great with synopsis. I shouldn't have volunteered. <laughs> no, I think I think you you did a you you did a a fairly good job of of uh, covering for me while while I tried to re- remember the plot. So yeah, uh, basically Conan kidnaps a a princess, and and the first part of the story is 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 a chase. Right, and and it 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 ends in a in yet another confrontation between Conan and an evil evil wizard, and in the midst of this, there there's all sorts 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 of uh, politics. And I've I is it is it just me or or have the politics in these stories gotten more complicated since Phoenix on on the sword? This feels like one level more complicated than we've seen in the past in terms of political intrigues in Conan stories, definitely. I think that it's maybe telling that Yasmina has uh, this whole kind of elaborate plot to coerce Conan into acting as her champion rather than try to, uh, you know, just entreat him directly. She takes prisoners of his and then uh, her intention is to blackmail him to ransom those prisoners in exchange for his service. Which obviously doesn't work out because you know he's Conan, so he's just going to break in and kidnap the princess instead and trade her for the prisoners. Though that doesn't work out for him. Um, anyway, it's uh, there's a lot of wheeling and dealing, a lot of wheeling and dealing in this story. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, uh, politics ticks aside. There's there's an exciting chase through the through the hills. And and then it, it 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 ends at this at this weird uh, temple thing, and there's there's these black hooded vulture like wizard people that that I think aren't quite human or or are they human? I I, I can never tell whether something's supposed to be human or or a demon or a human that looks like like a demon. Well, they're basically evil Tibetan sorcerers, which is to say that they're a a riff on the. Um with the ascended masters of uh, theosophy, right? You have Shambhala and the, um, the what do they call them, the wise ones. Here they're, uh, here they're wicked. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, so the, the, I, I believe there's, there's a part where Conan goes into the temple with, with a bunch of, of his, his men and the wizards, uh, basically cast hold person on on everybody and they they force conan's uh henchmen to walk forward one at a time and and they and they kill them and then they try to do the same thing to conan but it it doesn't work because conan is conan oh, no, no, i feel like this is this is one of the very 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 few vanishingly few examples in literature of the hero making a saving throw no, I think I think Conan he, is he actually has badass a, enough that he he forces he forces that off, right? He fights he, it off. I, I he he also has a magic girdle, which I completely forgot about un, until now. Well, okay, so yes, the girdle does help, but there's a magic girdle, and he, as a Westerner, is less susceptible to Eastern magic. So yes. there's this part where yes. yeah, there's this He's part the, where Kem saw where they're talking about him and his ability to use hypnosis, and it's just 
for whatever reason, instilled in the culture of the peoples of the East that hypnosis is a real thing, and so it makes them susceptible. It not being accepted as part of the superstition or tradition of Western nations, of which Conan is a part, he doesn't really accept that. So when they try to do the whole you know, hypnotic stare down, he's able basically to just get a bonus on the will save on that. Because yeah, of yeah, some yeah. sort of inherent barbarian toughness to magic. We're talking about two different occasions, I think. In one of them, the girdle saves him, and in the other, that's it's right. his, his Western nature. But yes, earlier I, it's his Western nature. Yeah, that's right. I, I absolutely read that as, um, as a saving throw, as him making a saving throw. And you, you never see saving throws in the literature. People cast spells, and other people get turned to stone or disintegrated. They never just shake it off. Unless you're Taylor Swift. So, um, does the wizard turn into a giant snake? I, I seem to re- recall Conan fighting a giant snake here. Or, or does, yeah. he, does he summon a giant snake? Yeah, it's, I, think he, I think he summons it. Um, well, it might actually be him, because it does turn into, like, he sees human footprints. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's Robert E. Howard, so there's a giant snake, right? Um, right if, there's, if there's not a giant gorilla, there's a giant snake. Absolutely. I mean, and this is why everything Frazetta looks so awesome because it always is like giant snake, giant ape when it's Conan stuff. Because mm-hmm. that's a huge part of the antagonist. But well, this is the yeah. the third or fourth giant snake we've seen Conan fight. I think uh, over the course of uh, over the course of our reading, I haven't been counting giant snakes, but it's, it's not the first or the second or even the third. I don't think. If 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 there if there was a Conan uh, drinking game, giant giant snake would be drain your drain your cup. Absolutely, and oh yeah, that would go down quick too. I think. Well, a Conan drinking game would I think resolve, revolve around Conan um, ending up the uh, the captor of some beautiful maiden who, despite her uh, civilized ways, can't help but be overwhelmed with her attraction to the steely uh, Hyperborean. Well, he's he's got those those thews. Yeah, but you know he's he doesn't force himself upon her, and for that she is so so grateful. Well, I, I mean know, that's a that's a pretty low standard, you know. Really, it's like, well, you didn't force it, so <laughs> I guess I know. I just you know at the, when we first started reading Conan stories, I was like, ah, the treatment of women is manages to be you know it's galling even for. Uh, when you correct for the decade that it was written and so forth. And at this point, it's just, you know, vaguely, vaguely misogynistic wallpaper. You know, it's just, it's, you know, it's going to be there and you can just, eh, okay. At least you can if you're, you know, if you're a guy like me. Okay. So fairly, fairly average Conan story. Not, not terrible, but not a classic. Is that, is that the verdict that we, that we want to give here? That's basically how I felt about all three of these. Uh, but the people of the Black Circle, yeah, it seems like a very a very classic Conan story. I remember commenting when we first started reading Conan stories that I had certain expectations that I felt like were not being met. And the people of the Black Circle meets those expectations. You know, Conan is a super badass. There's a simpering maiden. There's evil wizards. It's, it's an archetypal uh, Conan story. Fair assessment. Peter? Um, I mean, I have a personal like for the people of the Black Circle, just because I really like the, everything that's going on with Kemsa and Gitara for some reason. I like that they had like a little side story going on in it. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, I think that that assessment is completely valid, that this is just 
more of the archetype of what a Conan story is, but there's nothing particularly memorable. I would disagree with the statement that all three of these stories are this way. I think A Witch Shall Be Born really ends up kind of standing out from the pack, mm-hmm. but... Yeah, I, I, I also disagree with that, with that statement. Can you can you remind uh, us and, and the listeners who, who are Kemsa and Gitara and what is their story? Oh, yes. Okay, so Gitara is a handmaiden of the Devi Yasmina. And so it's Yasmina, right? It's not Yasmila. See, he uses all Yasmina, these names. Yeah. Yasmina, okay. There's a lot of like just like the thag-thog thing, right? Or thog-thog thing, change a letter. Uh, but anyway, we, so... We could just say Princess Jasmine. Yes! Oh my gosh, that would be so accurate for this. Okay, so yeah, so Yasmina, uh, she has this handmaiden named Gitara, and her lover is one of the acolytes of the Seers of the Black Circle on Mount Yimsha, and that's, his name is Kemsa. And it kind of begins with him um, being, politically speaking, in bed with this guy from Turin, who's working for the King Yezdegur to undermine the power of... Uh, uh, the royal family of Vendaya so that he can start taking their territories into his own kingdom. And so, uh, anyway, uh, eventually Kemsa is convinced from the love of Gitara, this Devi's handmaiden, that he should kind of break away from the people of the, Bla- you know, the the seers of the Black Circle on Yimsha and kind of take power for himself, uses magic for his own means. And so he does, and they kind of go through their own plots of how they might be able to get the Devi to use her to make themselves, you know, kings and, like, royalty, but it, it really kind of comes to nothing for them. One thing that I thought was uh, kind of curious about that aspect of the story was that Yasmina is on the record in more than one place as sort of trusting Gitara, her handmaiden, implicitly. And Gitara very much betrays that trust, and it's not clear what motivates her to do so, whether Gitara always thought that Yasmina was just you know, like, oh, this damn rich person, I'll pretend to be their friend because you know they're rich and could have me killed um, easily, or if there's some, uh, something more in the line of Kimsa you know, seducing her away from her initial loyalty to Yasmina, or, uh, or what have you, it's, uh, it's just unaddressed. Well, I think I think we've we've seen in the in the high high Borean age, every everyone wants wants power and and riches, and it's it's just a more, it's it's a more savage and selfish time, I I suppose. Yeah, it, it stands out, like I said, because Yasmina specifically mentions in more than one place that uh, she trusts Gitara. And I think that loyalty is something that also exists in the Hyperborean age. So why? Um, Guitar was not was not feeling that loyalty. I feel like she, is a fair question. She failed her sense motive check, or she just finally saw her way out. I mean, she may be the handmaiden to the Devi, and yes, compared to other servants, and honestly, a lot of common people probably in Vendaya, her lifestyle is a little bit better because she lives gets to live in the castle, right? But ultimately, she is a person in bondage. She doesn't really have the ability to kind of um, come and go as she pleases or make decisions for her own life. She's just meant to kind of serve someone else. And I think that right, there's, it wouldn't well, there's take long for that to get old. There's absolutely a lot of possible reasons for her action, but the text uh, just leaves us guessing as to what they are. So we're, we're saying some, some better char- characterization here could have, could have improved this, this tale. Uh, I just I think that it's it's an odd hole in the story of uh, Gitara and uh, Kimsa. Well, I think I think the ultimate unanswered question is: Does Gitara play guitar? Can she lay down some hot licks? 
She invented shredding, actually. So I'm going to go with yes. And and Kemsa is is where Conan gets gets the girdle. Yes. Yeah. Conan, he has the magic. Conan wears a girdle through much of this tale. So, if you're into men wearing girdles, people of the Black Circle, that's that's all we 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 gotta say. Yeah, well, I, I was imagining sort of a uh, a wrestling belt. Mm-hmm. No, nope, it's a girdle. Clearly says says girdle. The the um si- since uh, Facebook uh, conveniently. Pro- uh, not Facebook. Uh, since Wikipedia helpfully provides the the original Weird Tales uh, art for for each of these stories, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna comment on on those as we as we go. the The art for the people of the Black Circle shows a guy who looks a lot like Emperor Palpatine, uh, clutching clutching you know a a blushing uh, serving wench or possibly the princess, since you know they both could be dressed like like that. Um, so I I I guess that's the evil wizard from this from this tale, and that's that's Princess Yaz Yasmina. So I think it's uh, it's Kimsa and Guitaro would be my guess. Could be. Could be. Who knows? And from a completely outside perspective, this is where Robert E. Howard's luck is starting to really turn around in weird tales, right? I mean, he's still being underpaid um, by Farnsworth, but he uh, like this is the point where people are really starting to read the Conan stories, and they're starting to get like a lot of positive feedback. Uh, Weird Tales is about it. So he is barely able to finish a story before Farnsworth is like, hey, give me another story. And and yet right? we're only like a year or two away from like the end of Howard's life. So I know it's so sad because like, you know, that that's one of the reasons I think that it's so tragic that he and decided to end his own life is look how prolific he was in just a few short years. Mm-hmm. I mean, imagine what we could what he could have done in a couple more decades. Yep. You know, but maybe he wouldn't have had the same fire under him to get published. I mean, the poverty that he was experiencing at the time had definitely had to be, you know, like a huge motivating factor to keep these stories written. I mean, the money where he kept the banks where he kept his money went bust twice in his lifetime because of the depression. So he was just was kind of constantly barely making it. Well, for people of the Black Circle, he was paid $250, according to Wikipedia. And I have to say that for a sword and sorcery novella, $250 seems like a pretty, uh, a pretty good deal to me. There's not a lot of markets that would pay in 2015 uh, $250 for a sword and sorcery novella. In 1934, that was the equivalent of, uh, what, like $5,000, oh, wow. which is way, way, it's not all that much in the grand scheme of things. You can't live off that for a year, but it's still way, way more than you can make nowadays with uh, this kind of short fiction. It would, it would pay my rent for most of a year, so... Okay, let's let's move on to the next of our of, of tonight's trilogy. Uh, the next tale is a witch shall be born, which uh, the the title alone earns earns points with me just just for it it not being the something of something. Um, but yeah, I, I think a witch shall be born is is a great title, and the title refers to. Uh, the the witch who is the villain of this of this tale, a woman by the name of Salome, and uh, the, the the story actually opens with uh, the good queen uh, Taramis waking up in in her bedchamber to find that uh, not only does she have an, an identical twin sister, who uh, but her identical twin sister is in fact standing in uh, in in her uh, bedroom. And is an evil witch and intends to imprison her and rule the kingdom in her stead. 
and that's that's pretty much the the introduction that that we are that we are are given. Uh, there's a prophecy in this kingdom that every 100 years a witch shall be born with, I, I believe, a red crescent moon on her chest. Uh, like which, a birthmark, yeah. Right, like a like a birthmark. And historically, these these infant uh, girls have been have either been killed at, at at birth, or they they grew up to be evil evil witches. And uh, uh, Taramis's parents tried to have Salome killed. Uh, she was taken out to the desert as an as an infant, but she survived, uh, and and is is back to get revenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She also has a boyfriend named Constantius. Known as the Falcon. the Falcon, yes, the Falcon, who is a mustache twirling villain. He has a pencil thin mustache that he twirls as he taunts Conan in this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her her first act as evil queen is to let uh, Constantius into the city, and he conquers the city and provides the muscle to back up her tyrannical rule, and she she promptly builds an evil temple and summons a demon and sacrifices and tortures people. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty fair assessment. Um, and I thought that this story had some good points and some less great points. I gotta say. Yeah. I mean, as, as a villain, Jeff, she kind of reminds me of Joseph Kerwin. Cause, cause her, her whole, like she's not subtle. <laughs> And her her entire goal just seems to be, I'm going to be evil. I'm- yeah, there's no, and I know I know I kind of cut you off halfway through the uh, through your description of the plot, but you 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 reached a point where you'd finished describing who the villains are, and I feel right. like that's a good place to stop and talk about the villains for a bit because their malevolence is essentially unmotivated. I 100% agree with you in comparing Salome to uh, Joseph Kerwin. She could very very easily rule the city without instituting a reign of terror without prompting her own subjects to walk around saying things like, man, it is as if Queen Tamaris has been killed and replaced with an evil twin. Um, she could uh, just you know, rule more or less the way Tamaris did. Tamaris seemed to live pretty comfortably. And um, as Tamaris herself points out, also, if Salome had just sort of shown up and been like, hey, I'm your long-lost sister, um, Taramis would have showered her with riches and um, and and comfort. Uh, so t- uh, Salome isn't really getting anything out of the reign of terror. That she's not getting anything out of the reign of terror. What's the point of the reign of terror? Well, it might be just a petty vindiction, right? It might be that knowing that as a youth, because of the birthmark that she just happened to be born with, she was going to be slaughtered, and it's a culture that you know not only condones but sanctions and approves of that kind of behavior. I mean, that might make her vengeful. And then we don't really know. Wasn't she spirited away to Katai for some time? Wasn't that kind of her backstory? And yeah. so, like, wh- one of the things that about Katai is that, well, Conan never goes there in the Robert E. Howard work. It's often re- referenced as being this very, like, debauched, highly mystical land. And so, who knows what sort of corrupting things she may have fallen into. Because I get the impression from the way that wizards are kind of cast in the Robert E. Howard is that he probably i i think he ascribed he being robert e howard ascribed to the idea of lovecraft that you know knowledge was fundamentally corrupting you know that when you learn too much it kind of twists your soul and you kind of lose something in so doing it and so i think that people that truck in magic a lot in robert e howard's world are just more likely to be corrupted by it 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it does feel kind of like picking nits talking about uh, good governance in a Conan story. Mm-hmm. It just yeah. seems it seems like there's no good reason to run the city-state into the ground. Maybe she just gets um, off on being evil. Like that's I, that's just that's just what she likes, and she's gonna she's gonna live life the way the the way she wants to. She she also seems to be. Uh, a a a worshiper or or a cleric of this of this demon that that she she summons. I mean, maybe maybe like her her goal is just to promote this 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 demon. You know, she's she's under she 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 serves him and she wants to sacrifice people to to him because that's that's who she's thrown thrown in with. Well, you know, like, again, we're questioning the motivation of a a secondary antagonistic character. Um, I'm not. I'm not questioning it. You are. Okay, I'm questioning <laughs> the motivation of a secondary antagonistic character, and I'm wondering if this is maybe just uh, something Howard was not interested in spending a lot of time on. Generally, wicked people are wicked. They do wicked things because they're wicked. I think. I think uh, villains with realistic motivations is is a relatively modern thing, and and probably a response. To stories like like this, and, and 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 after reading a witch shall be born, I can I can, I can see why why people would why, why authors would want to create more realistic, well well rounded villains with with understandable uh, motives. But I've I've always been a fan of villains who are evil for for evil's sake. I love Emperor Palpatine. And Doctor Ro- Ro- Robotnik, right? The, the, well, the the thing about those characters, though, is that their evil plans are sustainable. You know, Palpatine has the Empire, and he can continue to be the Emperor indefinitely. Robotnik, uh, similarly, has a whole city of robot servants. Uh, Salome, though, she's running her city-state into the ground. You know, it's it's underlined in a lot of different places in this story that her her practices. Her reign has is is not sustainable, but maybe and... her will is constrained. Maybe she doesn't actually want to rule that way. But I think of her relationship with Thal. Well, there's a lot of textual support for that. I mean, maybe not. I, I mean, I would agree with you that there's like no textual support. But I've kind of always read the relationship between her and Thal as less um, a cleric and their deity, and more of like a warlock and their patron, right? And for what we know, I mean, maybe she got the power she needed to be able to replace Taramis and this is kind of the payback to the patron that gave her that power is you kind of got to sacrifice a lot of people. Maybe, maybe, maybe but maybe. we're, we're, we're inventing um, motivation for her because Howard doesn't supply us with any. Yeah, yet again. Well, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's fun, fun, fun to talk about when, an, when an author leaves you, leaves you holes, why not, why not try and fill them? Oh, sure. Sure. It depends on what you're looking for. We could take this city state and drop it into a to a D and D game, and um, we would have to answer these questions. Right. I mean, as as D and D players, right? Our like our we, like we get our fun from from taking these stories as a, as a jumping off point and and sp- spinning them out into into broader and 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 broader tales. So, like as as inspiration goes, these stories are great because they have tons of holes in them. <laughs> That is uh, very well put. Thank you, Jeff. You're you're welcome. So uh, the the way Conan enters the story is he he I believe he is the captain of the guard uh, it, when when Queen that, when Queen Taramis rules. 
uh, and he is right away able to, able to spot the evil twin, and as as punishment, he is nailed to to a cross outside the city and left to die, like uh, Spartacus. And honestly, that that is why this becomes kind of a standout story, and not necessarily because of the plot line, but because that image of Conan crucified is so iconic in the fan base and in who Conan is. I mean, it even gets replicated in the 1982 Schwarzenegger film, mm-hmm. right? Like this is just a huge, for some reason in the collective consciousness of the Conan fandom, him being crucified outside of Kauron is like this huge moment, like very iconic. Oh, it's, it's, it's a reminder that historically a cru- crucifixion was a way to execute people. It, it wasn't just Jesus guys. Lots yeah. of, lots of people got, got crucified and it was, it was not fun. Uh, but they, they, the the bad guys did not count on Conan having a Constitution score of twenty. Yes, That's basically the situation. Yeah, Conan survives through sheer uh, manly grit. Yeah, basically, what once again Conan demonstrates that that, that he has an eighteen or, or a twenty in in every score, except for possibly in in intelligence. I'm Although, not sure that I would agree. In, that in, it's, uh, in he Jules, doesn't have an eighteen intelligence. In in Jewels of Gwalior, we'll we'll see that that he knows many 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 uh, languages. Yeah, he's a sharp guy, Conan is. But that I mean. Most of his sharpness could be a, could be explained through wisdom or charisma, not 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 necessarily book book learning, but we're we're getting ahead ahead of ourselves. So yeah. he he is nailed to a cross and left to die, and uh, some a a de- yet another chieftain of a of a desert tribe. Who are, who are, who are these guys, Peter? They're the Zaugir. So these guys live in the desert region between like Kauron, which is like the city state they're in, and Turin. So he's going to get with these guys later on and make a whole bunch of trouble for the king of Turin, like he does kind so of. So Turin, like this is supposed to be like like the Middle East, right? Yeah, Turin. Um, so look at here. So Turin's Turinians are a type of Hyrcanian. Okay, and so Hyrcanians are any of those people from the Eurasian steppe. Right, be they Mongols or Huns or okay. you know whatever, and then Turin is more of like the you know the Ottoman Turkish Empire, like right after the collapse of the Caliphate, but like right before they take Constantinople, like that sort of Bronze Age them. I don't even want to say Bronze Age because that's not accurate, but it it's kind of fits that sort of like early Muslim like post Caliphate world is what Turin is supposed to be. Okay, okay. So we've 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 moved from not India to not Turkey. Yes, absolutely. Uh, yep. Or not or, Turkey, not the Middle East. Right. Okay. So yet yet another, but I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of almost like like the same uh, uh, situation that that he had before with the Afghuli tribe, right? This 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 tribe comes and rescues him from the cross, and within like a year, uh, Conan has killed their chieftain and and taken taken over. Um, or well, not not killed him, but uh, ex- exiled exiled the chieftain. Conan is, mm-hmm. is 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 unusually merciful with this guy. He just he just says get out and never come 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 back. Um, well, you know the guy did save his life effectively. So, and then he he raises an army and retakes a city. Uh, there there is a secondary plot going on inside the city with this guy Val- Valerius. 
because because Conan is is outside the city. Howard needs to show us what's going on inside the city. So there's there's this there's this guardsman of uh, uh, Valerius who is loyal to uh, Taramis and like like Conan, he realized right away that Salome was not Taramis, and he. Um, he he is able to sneak in, into the prison and and rescue the true queen, and and between uh, Valerius and Conan, uh, the city is re- retaken and and the demon is slain, basically. Demon is slain quickly and largely off screen. Yes, yeah. Wasn't it just uh, archers that took out the Thaug, mm-hmm. isn't it? I believe so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very anticlimactic with the way that thing. We don't really see a lot of the creature itself. I mean, Howard Howard just doesn't seem to really do monsters very well. I mean, he's 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 got a lot of them, but they all seem to be kind of the same thing. And like like like, like and they don't really demonstrate interesting powers and they all just just die very quickly. You know, that's true. Um Conan fights a lot of different kinds of monsters, but the monsters are almost always the same kind of physical threat. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just some kind of big, powerful, strong, fast thing. Uh, in like D and D terms, they have a real a real dearth of interesting spell like abilities. I think I think I think I think the most creative creatures that he came up with were the zombie hy- hyenas in in Queen of of, of the Black Coast. But, they were definitely evocative. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were. Well, I mean, they weren't snakes and they weren't apes, so they they stand out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and this is like the third or fourth demon that that we've seen, who's basically just just a big black thing. Yeah, there's not there's not fire breath. There's not uh, you know uh, lightning that it shoots from its uh, eyeballs or anything like that. I mean, going going all the way back to phoenix on the on on the sword we we barely saw the demon in 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 that one but just from people's reactions to it we we got a sense of how horrible it it was and 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 here this is supposedly like an an even bigger demon right because it's got a whole temple to itself and it's it's barely a footnote Mm -hmm. well in um lord what was it called the um, one that was uh, adapted into module B4, the, um, the Lost City in the Desert. Oh, Zuthal the Dusk. Yeah, yeah. The, um, the, yeah, there's that monster that is, um, you know, a, uh, a see-through, kind of. Right, it's not, uh, it's not all there. You can't just slice it to pieces. I don't remember that being the case but if if you say so i the I'll, uh, I'll, the titular slithering shadow of the story of the slithering shadow right well, I, I i believe it. I, I just i just forgot that particular particular detail yeah he ends up um i had to refer to wikipedia to remind me of what happens but according to this he throws it down a well yes i do remember that part yeah, yeah because he can't slice it to pieces which is uh, which really stands out because that's how Conan usually deals with things: as he slices them to pieces, mm-hmm. or or beats them to death with a with a beef bone. Yeah. Yep. All right. So, uh, any any last comments about a witch shall be born? 
Um, not necessarily about a witch shall be born, but just as like a, a statement on Robert E. Howard with these kind of writings, kind of what we've been talking about um, with his monsters, is that I think it's important to note that while we remember Robert E. Howard for his fantasy work, at the time he was writing a lot of like historical fictions and about this boxer named Castigan, right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of his, a lot of the work that he was really selling at the time um, prior to Conan was really grounded in reality and these kind of like fight stories and like Near East and Far East stories and historical fiction and stuff. And so I think that some of the weakness of his monsters comes from the fact that his normal sort of day-to-day pay-the-bills writing was a lot of really historical fiction, like stuff that's very much more grounded in reality that has antagonists that can just be beaten down. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeff, any any last comments on A Witch Shall Be Born? So one thing that uh, we kind of glossed over is the way that Conan tricks his way into the city. Um, he pretends that he has built a bunch of siege engines and uh, rolls up fake siege engines to the, uh, to the city. The um, city's defenders see the fake siege engines uh, from, a, from a great distance and are like, oh no, siege engines, we'd better ride out onto the plane and do battle there because if we let him get those siege engines up to the city, he'll uh, tear the walls down. And of course he doesn't have siege engines. Um, so it's a trick. He's, uh, he's able to trick the mercenary army into an, uh, into an open battle instead of uh, a siege. Yeah, that I... That was actually an an interesting plot point. Yeah, yeah. I I think this was one of the better ones. I I enjoyed it. It's not a it's not a bad story. I don't feel like it really stands out compared to um, some of the earlier stories that we've read. But mm-hmm. it's certainly not a bad story. Yeah, I mean Howard Howard is still an an, an amazing writer. His his prose is is always. Um, e, e, evocative and um yeah I, I i i enjoy listening to to the words that that he's that he's writing even even if if the plots and the characters aren't aren't always stellar mm-hmm. i guess all right let us let us move on to the final tale of the evening and uh this is jewels of gualer the original title was The Servants of Bit Yakin, and it was published in Weird Tales, March 1935. Um, A Witch Shall Be Born was published in Weird Tales, December 1934. I think think I might have skipped that. So this this was published March of 1935, and this, this tale takes place in an analog of Africa, and it is a treasure hunting story. It, it features a, a dungeon with a treasure in it and some monsters. Mm-hmm. So lots of inspiration here. <laughs> uh, Peter, would you like to summarize the plot? Yes. Okay. So um, Conan goes uh, to, I want to say it's Kishon, and that's, that's on our Hyboria map. That's just south of Stygia. So we're, you know, not Egypt. It's just south mm-hmm. of there. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, he goes to Kishon, and his idea is that he's heard about the, these jewels called the Teeth of Gwaldur. And so he is going to infiltrate Kishon and convince them that he can train their military to go against their neighbor Punt um, and use that as a way of staying in the city. So at 
he can kind of plot a way to steal these jewels. Turns out, however, that there's a Stygian already there named Thutmekri, and he also has basically the same plan. And so he's able to get kind of the uh, on the good graces of the people that are in charge of Kishon and kind of gets, you know, uh, Conan, uh, Conan booted out. And so Conan abandons the city and goes, you know, kind of early to travel ahead of them to this place called Alkminan, which is where this mummified oracle of Yalalia, thank you, um, lives and that's kind of like where this treasure is kept. So- if if I could interject, I think mm-hmm. that it's interesting that you have you have I think just now gotten to the point where the story actually begins. There's a lot of uh, reference to stuff that has already happened in this story. I almost get the sense that it's the it's the second part of a two parter, and the first part, however, I didn't think was interesting enough to actually write. I could definitely see that. Yeah, it, it, this was all kind of background narrative mm-hmm. before this. Yeah, but um, there's a lot to it. There's a lot to it. There's a surprisingly – for a story that basically is Conan wanders around in a dungeon for a while, there's a really complicated political setup. Well, there's there's a whole bunch of different factions in the dungeon with him also looking for these for these jewels. And, and the backstory explains why they're there and what their re- relationship is to each other. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not criticizing it in any way. I'm just observing right. that this is this is you know again more complexity than has been present in a lot of these stories. And I I, I note that Fritz Leiber, another another author that that we'll get to later on appendix, and rated this as one of the worst Conan stories, calling it repetitious and childish, a self vitiating brew of pseudoscience, stage illusions, and genuine supernatural. Uh, I actually en- enjoyed it, contrary to the opinion of Mister Mister Liber. Like as as a as a D and D fan, um, the, the, you know I I I found that, you know there there were secret passages. There there was a woman pretending to be a dead goddess. There were there were weird gray monkey monsters. It was it was it was it was a dungeon. I don't know. I, I I thought it was it was it was pre- pretty neat. So Peter, tell us tell us about the dungeon and what yes, happens when Conan yes. gets there. Because I, okay. I did cut you, I did cut you off halfway through. Oh, that's okay. So uh, Conan goes and um, uh, so the atmosphere is super neat. The natural gives away to the oracle, so he goes down there and there's basically the woman you guys are talking about is a Corinthian slave named Muriela. I'm always bad at pronouncing names, but um, and her job uh, is to just play the part of the oracle and tell priests to hand jewels to the mercury so it's this inside job with the guy that got conan kind of booted out to begin with or put into disfavor or is favored over conan so at the same time in what this place used to be this dungeon right because every dungeon needs a great backstory um was Mm -hmm. this guy named bit yakin and he basically was the one that um when people would go and worship the goddess Yalalia, he was he was the one providing the prophecies from the hiding place, um, and kind of feeding them that. So eventually, he died and is buried. And his followers are the ones that have kind of degenerated once again into these gray-furred ape creatures. And so that's another recurring theme, and we've seen this before, like with Thog in the mm-hmm. uh, Rogues in the House, degeneration into kind of a hominid or a pre-human uh, form is pretty common. And so anyway. Um, they kill the survivors of the Mary's party, 
right? The apes do, right? When they attempt to claim the jewels of Gwalur, the teeth of Gwalur, and Conan, you know, gets his chest, but has to abandon it to save the slave girl. And then kind of in the end, there's kind of a, I, I thought it was not the greatest of endings where he's just like, ah, oh, we can use your skills as an actress to, you know, to get people out of their money in a different temple. This is a great idea, right? And then he kind of goes off on his way. Well, I mean, but that's that's so Conan. Both the jewels and the girl are are falling off of this ledge, and 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 he has has a chance to to save one or the other, but 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 not both. And he he doesn't hesitate, right? He he cho- he chooses the girl. Um, you know, Conan Conan always seems to make the right moral choice. You know, just despite being being a rogue and and a murderer, he 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 always seems to uh, make make the right moral choice. And then and then, you know, the the jewels that that he came here to get are lost for for forever. And and he just he just laughs it off and concocts a a new plan, right? Absolutely. I think that this is um, another example of kind of an archetypal Conan story, where he ends up. Um, you know, off to off to off to another adventure, kind of. Oh no, here we go again as an ending, mm-hmm. which I, fits I, well because of the fact that they, you know, because Conan does it jumps from adventure to adventure so much. This isn't as much a if from a D and D feel. This isn't as much like a um, consistent cam- campaign as much as it's like when you play a series of modules that mm-hmm. may, may or may not be linked. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really it makes what what the Conan stories make me want to do, and probably somebody else has already done this, is write a story uh, that's set in between two of these stories, where Conan and his girlfriend break up, and that's what happens in the story, because he's he's constantly alone and then meeting exotic princesses who just can't help themselves, uh, but be be overwhelmed by his towering masculinity and yeah i I guess the shine wears off of that for a while and then they're like you know i'm going to go get with somebody who uh who showers on a regular basis (laughs) well you could you could do that for every single james bond film (laughs) well and elsbrock de camp and lynn carter legitimately did try to do that so in the stuff that's coming out the really famous sort of paperbacks uh, mm-hmm. From the 1950s and si- uh, 1960s, 70s, that everybody remembers with like the Frazetta artwork and everything. Um, there's always a paragraph at the beginning of a story that's kind of like, "What happened in between the last story and this story?" <laughs> so it's not really it's not Robert E. Howard, but the Elspride to Camp and Lynn Carter definitely were of the same idea, where they were like, "How can we link this a little bit?" Conan and Yasmina agreed to just be friends. There's a lot of him just ditching women, to be honest with you. Like, a lot of him just kind of, like, it was sort of tying him down, so he decided to get out of it. I, yeah, I don't, I don't, I, I can't really buy that. I, I, I gotta think that he's the, he's the dumpy rather than the dumper. Well, you'd think he'd have to be. He has to be boorish after some time, yeah. you know? Like, he's great in a scrap, and yeah, when he's, like, he's sweaty and muscular and saving you from being eaten by ape creatures. Yeah, he's probably pretty great, but it wouldn't take very long to get tired of him in a social setting. Mm-hmm. I, I I was a little disappointed that, that other other than the ape monsters, there there turned out to be nothing actually supernatural going going on here. I mean we're 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 told in in the beginning that, that there's this there's this oracle at at the at in the dungeon and she's this she's this a woman, she's this dead woman whose whose body never never ages, and that turns out to be not true. It's a it's an actress pretending to be this 
this oracle, and then we go in, into a different dungeon, and, and there's this disembodied voice, but that turns out to be not the goddess that we that we think it is. It's it's one of one of these treasure hunters trying to fool the other treasure hunters. Um, so I was I was th- throughout the story I was expecting like the real actual you know goddess or priestess or whatever who haunts these these ruins to show up and do something, but that never materializes. Yeah, I could I could very easily be misremembering, but I thought that the um, the body that Murella was impersonating, uh, Yalea, the the mummified oracle. Um, was in fact weirdly supernaturally preserved and seemed to have been dead for only seconds, uh, despite having been dead for thousands of years. I, I think you are correct. I think I think we're we're told that that there is actually a supernaturally well preserved body of a woman, and the the eight monsters keep changing her clothes. But mm-hmm. other other than that, like she doesn't get up and talk to anybody. She doesn't have yeah. Any it doesn't power. it doesn't tie to anything. She just she just lies there and is is kind of neat. It's yeah, it's 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 a dead body. Yeah, she's she's like uh, Princess Zelda from the beginning of uh, Zelda Two: The The Adventure of Link. She's just. She's... <laughs> well, there's something I haven't thought about in uh, tw- twenty five years. <sighs> I wish they would make more Zelda games like Zelda Two: The The Adventure of Link, but they do not. All right, anyways. You may be the first person I've ever heard say that they wish there were more Zelda games like Zelda 2, The Adventure of Link. So sad. So sad. Okay. Uh, we, oh, we, we, we also get a mention of Zem- Zimbabwe, which is, which is neat because apparently it takes its name from the ruins of Great Zimb- Zimbabwe and not the real-world country of Zimbabwe, which apparently, according to Wikipedia, was not a thing at, at this time. Um, yeah, Zimbabwe was a country that, um, or city-state that that had existed, and uh, modern Zimbabwe takes its name from it. So there you go. Yeah, in Learned. the 30s, Africa was still largely colon. You know, it was colonial territories of various European powers. Still, it's weird to think about that, but a lot of that, like to go way off topic here, a lot of that liberation struggle really happened in like the 50s through the 70s. In Africa, so a lot of those countries are younger than we think of them. Yeah. Or to put it another way, those the history of those countries is kind of lost. Yes, because yeah. certainly there were were nation states in Africa uh, prior to colonization, but we don't know very much about them. Um, it's not covered in classes, etc. Yep. So learned a little bit about world history. And isn't that all you can really hope for from a Robert E. Howard story? A little bit of little bit of history. Yeah, he he was he was very interested in 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 the history. So uh, it's infotainment. You uh, you're entertained, and you also you learn a little something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it one, it's one to grow on. And it was great for giving a w- real world reference by you know mentioning things like by having like the Aesir and the Vanir. Then it kind of helps him with why they're like blonde and redheaded like nordic looking guys right like i think that for him it was just easier to have a real world referent for this fantasy because it kind of gave people some more grounding yeah i don't think that at this point people were really doing the whole craft your own fully you know mm-hmm. realized fantasy world i really can't imagine i can't think of anybody really before tolkien that's doing that and and well, even we- i mean even tolkien his fantasy world was proto real world he he just he just took the real world and wound the clock back so 
Well, we talked about this before, um, that Conan's stories seem to be set in this version of the real world circa like 1200 BC or so, you know, several centuries before what we think of as the beginning of, uh, of classical history. And yet, uh, you know, if you look at maps of Hyper- Hyboria and such, it's uh, very different. And I'm not completely clear on why that is the case, why Howard didn't just commit to the map being uh, the world we know as opposed to a different map. But uh, maybe, maybe that was just his under, understanding of, of like content, continental shift, you know, how that how that worked. I, su- I suppose that's possible. You know, I, I, I one of the editorials that came with the with the audiobook versions that I, I listened to for this episode commented that uh, how I, I that uh, Howard Howard just took his his favorite cultures from from different points in in history and and just kind of mashed them all together in in this time period that never was. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, but I don't I don't know why he did that instead of just declared that uh, analogs to these existed uh, in ancient days. I guess I'm just saying that's how I w- that I would have done it differently. That's, I mean, that, that's probably something where you'd have to delve into like his, his letters. Yeah. Or, or really his, his um, article called the Hyborian age. So he wrote an essay before he started. I've, I've referenced this before. He ref- mm-hmm. uh, he wrote that essay before he started writing these. And kind of the point is where do modern you know, peoples come from. And so he'll say like, oh yeah, you know, the Aesir Vanir, these are the people that became like the Nordic peoples down the road and like the Namidians and these people, these were like the Germans down the road. And so everything mm-hmm. for him in that, it he tries to kind of like clean it up. And so these analogs exist because it's it's uh, tapped into the, like, I don't know, the genetic memory or the cultural mem- memory mm-hmm. of an entire people as they transform into the ethnicities as we see them in, on modern earth. Yeah, but then you look at the map of the Hyborian Age, um, which, as you explained to me last time we talked about this, Howard did draw himself, and it's uh, it doesn't really match the geography of uh, of Europe and Asia and Africa, and the relative locations of things are, in some cases, flipped around relative to. The um, the historical locations the the Mediterranean is just absent, which means that a bunch of uh, countries are sort of shoved to different sides of the uh, of the continent since they're coastal. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it's just weird. Maybe maybe he he just wanted to cut out all the all the places that he thought of as as boring in in between places. Like I want I want these two countries to be next to to each other because I want Conan to go from one to to the other, and I I just want to skip all the stuff in the middle because that's something I'm not interested in as a as a writer. <laughs> not only do I not want to write a story set there, I want to believe that Conan just skipped the area entirely. Could be. I don't know. That's that's the best explanation that I can come come up with. Yeah. You know, and and again, it's 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 a shame that that he didn't live past the age of age of thirty. Otherwise, yeah. we you know he he might have wrote about some of this stuff in his in his memoirs or whatever. We might we might have the answers. Yeah, it's just one of the things that's interesting about. Conan is that it's set in this version of the ancient world which is fictionalized in fictionalized in weird ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
ways that uh, you know, looking back, somebody who's who's played a lot of D and D and is familiar with like the Forgotten Realms and Dragonlance and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, these don't they don't seem like the sort of word, world building choices that seem intuitive to me. All right, do we have any final comments about the jewels of Gwalur or the servants of Bit Yakin? Peter, apparently not. Yeah, I can't really think of any. I think we kind of awesome. Well, again, um, the stories we, we talked about were The People of the Black Circle, A Witch Shall Be Born, and Jewels of Gweller. I think we thought People of the Black Circle was kind of meh. I really liked uh, A Witch Shall Be Born and Jewels of Gweller. The opinions of my uh, co-hosts may may differ. I don't think that they're bad stories, but they're, they're not in my top five Conan stories uh, at the moment. I definitely agree with not being in top five, but they... I think they're important for building, like, expanding upon the character of Conan and giving us just more information about who he is as a person in his general worldview. I, 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 I think I, I liked A Witch Shall Be Born and, and Jewels of, of Gwalur is, is definitely very good inspiration for a, for a dungeon master making, making a dungeon to mm-hmm. add, add, add adventure. And so I think, I think we, will, we will leave it there. Uh, Peter, where on the internet can people find you? Um, I can be found, so I have a fledgling blog that I'm not as good at updating as I should called cromcountthedead.com, um, and that's pretty much where you can find me. I'm also, I go by Waffle Stomper on Twitter, though I never tweet, so it's not really worth looking me up. All right, listeners, visit Peter's blog and encourage him to him to update, or else Conan will come for you. I know, I need to get much better about that. I have one, as of the recording of this, I'm really close to finishing a discussion of realistic ec- economies in a game world. So, Conan will split up. your head that like a melon. sounds very interesting. If you don't update. I, I, I just talked over your... <laughs> Good, I, I definitely don't want to upset Conan. And also, Jeff, it makes me happy that at least someone thinks that this is interesting. So. Yeah, no, it's, I, uh, I'm, and I, I, I mean that. That's something that I'm, that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. Same here. As I was, as I was, uh, this really all came about because my players had too much darn money, and they're getting these, uh, getting coin from various realms, and there's no conversion rate, and that was starting to bother me. So, mm-hmm. here we go. I want, I want an, an article about the economy of Super Mario Brothers, because I'm, because I'm playing lots of lots of Mario Maker, so uh, that's that's on my mind. But but there's there's all these coins everywhere. Those coins have to be devalued. They're too big. To be legitimate gold, those are too large to be made out of like a, a lot of actual specie and be able to, you know, I think Koopa is probably devaluing his currency so that he can inflate his own coffers, I would imagine. Well, they could just be pennies. They could be. Yeah, maybe yeah, maybe maybe in Mario World the gold is is so abundant that it's near valueless and so yeah, the, those things are basically pennies. But we we know that uh, that uh a hundred coins can buy you your your own clone. So wow, well, it, cool. there's a lot of possible explanations for that. Not all of them mean that a hundred coins is a lot of money. All right, Jeff. Where on the internet can people find you if they don't already know? As always, I can be found at jeffwick.com, J-E-F-F-W-I-K.com, where I write things sometimes. All right. Well. Conan will split your head like a melon if you don't visit jeffwick.com. And with that friendly warning, we bring our show to a close. We hope you were entertained and enlightened by our discussion. Be sure to send your thoughts and comments in an email to thetomeshow at gmail.com. Put Appendix N in the subject line. 
Our next episode will be something of a double feature. We will discuss The Pygmy Planet by Jack Williamson and The Golgotha Dancers by Manly Wade Wellman, both together in one episode. The reason being, they are both fairly short and I didn't want to devote an entire episode to just one. Following the usual cycle, we will return to H.P. Lovecraft in the next episode after that, talking about his novel At the Mountains of Madness. This is a tale that needs no introduction, one of Lovecraft's finest works, and should be part of any Fantasy Geeks collection. And finally, three episodes from now, we will be discussing The Hour of the Dragon by Robert E. Howard, the only novel-length tale of Conan that he wrote. Don't miss it. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 25, The Stories of Conan by Robert E. Howard, Part 5. Thanks for listening.